Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In this amazing two-part episode of The Unmistakable Creative, I speak with Andy Dixon, who talks to me all about redemption and reinvention after serving a 27-year prison sentence in the Tennessee prison system. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Andy, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, you know, I, I came across your story by way of one of our listeners who heard uh, our interview with Joe Loya, and he said, you've got to talk to Andy. He has a story that's just as insane uh, if not more insane. And so I, when I when I got the brief from him, I said, oh, yeah, I said, I think this is a story we have to tell. Although the ongoing joke, I think, with our listeners is going to be that you have to either serve time or, you know, commit some sort of crime in order to get on this show <laughs> since we've had oh. a steady stream of them. But uh, tell us a, a bit about yourself, your background, your story, and, and how that has led you to uh, doing the work that you're doing today. Okay, be glad to. Uh... Uh, I, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is what you just said about, you know, people saying that they have to, you know, do something illegal or, you know, have this crazy life to get on the show. And, you know, I, I, I you know, I kind of understand that in a way, but I, I think what they're really saying is, is that uh, uh, the people you have on your show, it would seem to me, are the people that they really don't get to hear about this kind of stuff because it's not being talked about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, you know, it's just, you're, you're like covering things that, uh, should be covered that, uh, maybe aren't being covered. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, you're, you're doing something right there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, with that said, uh, I I guess, uh, I don't know how far you want to go back. Uh, Um, I actually uh, like usually to go when really I, far back, uh, as far back as your childhood, everything that led up to everything that you're up to today. Well, I, I guess it, 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 for my story, it begins uh, uh, at conception. I mean, you know, my I come from a long line of uh, people who uh, uh, felt like, you know, living outside the law was the only way to live. Um, 
my father, uh, my grandfather, uh, just, you know, on pretty much both sides of my family, uh, were involved in crime and, um, uh, their perspective of themselves would be, you know, a lot different than what a lot of other people might, you know, think of people that are living that kind of life. I mean, it was like normal, you know, uh, unnormal, normal, I guess is a good way of saying it. Uh, uh, some people, you know, get up in the morning, they take a shower, they put their suit on, they go to their law firm. Well, in our family, they'd get up and uh, they'd go out and they'd uh, run bars, take bars over, steal cars, uh, rob banks, uh, kidnap people. I mean, just, you know, whatever, you know, it's just uh, uh, a lot of criminal activity, but it was uh, a family kind of thing, you know? And um, so when I was born into this world, that's kind of where I landed. And um, not everybody in my family was a crook. I mean, my grandmother and uh, it seems like the women were always trying to fight against what the guys were doing, you know. But being women in that time and place, it was basically, you know, just hush up, keep your opinions to yourself, and we'll put the bread on the table and you'll keep the house clean and uh, take care of the kid kind of thing, you know. And so my earliest memory, I guess, is uh, uh, my uh, my mother getting sick and uh, she passed away when I was quite young and my father was in prison at the time and uh, he was doing some time and uh, I stayed with my grandmother uh, which would be his mother and she was the only person in my early life that gave me a vision of possibility of doing something different than what my father and uncles were doing and my grandfather she gave me a an early uh picture to look at of my future other than what was before me and unfortunately that wouldn't take seed for quite a while um when my father got out of prison uh, i went to chicago to live with him and that was in the late uh, 1950, I mean, early 60s. And um, the first time I'd been to Chicago, my mother was still alive. That was in the late 50s. And uh, just going back up there kind of felt familiar and good in a way. But um, <clears throat> my father, he ran uh, different nightclubs uh, during the day and of course, he would go out and gather things together, as we used to say it at night. But uh, I remember being very young and coming into the clubs and uh, seeing the women and uh, hearing the laughter and the talk and the cussing and the excitement of the nightclub. And, you know, that, that was pretty cool for a kid, you know. And I was like uh, ganged up by the time I was uh, 10 years old. I was running with a little street gang because at that age, I, I knew that to uh, be recognized, you know, you pretty much ran with a, you know, a neighborhood gang of some sort. 
And I remember one summer coming to the nightclub with a bloody face. And my uncle was out there and he asked me uh, what had happened. I told him that a kid in another gang had uh, uh, knocked me down and took my uh, money. He picks up a, a rock and he gives it to me. I mean, a pretty big rock. It was had a little hand, you know, that age. <laughs> he put that rock in my hand. He said, uh, I want you to go back out there to that park and find that, that son of a gun. And uh, uh, when you come back, I want to see blood and hair on that rock or I'm going to whoop your ass worse than anybody else. And I did. I went back to the park. I found that kid and uh, I did attack him with the rock. And uh, there were other kids with me and we ran back and the word got back even before I did that, you know, what I'd done. And uh, these guys actually lifted me up on their shoulders and walked me through the club and, and were just, you know, celebrating that I just knocked some kid's brains out with a rock that was like five years older than me. They thought that was just the greatest thing. But what it did to me, it, it, it imprinted on me the importance of how violence got you this this love and respect from your family and, and the friends that uh, your family had. And uh, so that set within me um, um, a feeling that I could, uh, you know, get this love and attention just by uh, having this spark of violence within me. And um, a couple of years later, uh, mainly because of who my father and my uncles were, uh, the gang on the north side of Chicago, Northsiders, they kind of like uh, uh, let me be a little bit more involved than normal for a 12-year-old. And there was a big gang fight scheduled for the park. And uh, it was back then they had like rules, you know, <laughs> they would get together and they would say, OK, we're going to have this fight in the park, but here are the rules. We're all agreeing that we're going to go fist. We're not going to have knives. We're not going to have chains. We're not going to have guns. We're going to meet out there and we're going to fight it out with fist. Of course, people always cheated. So there would always be somebody designated to bring knives and guns just in case the other side did. Then that person could just distribute those knives and guns and fight it out. And being 12, I was given this sack. And uh, I don't know if you still remember the old uh, paper grocery sacks. Mm -hmm. That's what it was, is an old paper grocery sack. And it had some pistols and some knives in it. And, and it was, you know, kind of heavy for a kid my age. And uh, I was left at the back gate of the park. And I was told to stay there. And then if I got a signal, and signals were these different pitch whistles that we used to do. And... Um, uh, I was to wait, and if the whistle sounded, and I was to come running and empty out the bag, and people would grab what they could grab off of the ground and get busy with it. And so I'm standing there with a couple other young kids, and uh, we're all considered too young to go out and fist fight with these 17, 18 year olds, you know. 
because like I said, I was 12. And uh, what no one counted on was these, this other gang coming around the back, which is what they did. They didn't come in from their side of the street we figured they'd come in from since, you know, they lived uh, farther south than from where we were in Chicago. We was expecting them to come up from the south and not over from the uh, uh, from the west heading east. So, but that's the way they came in. And the guy that was leading them, he steps up toward me and asked me what I have in the sack, and I was scared to death. And um, I told him it didn't matter what I had in the sack. And um, he started to walk toward me, and I pulled a gun out of the sack, and I uh, shot him. And um, uh, he died, and I was 12 years old when that happened. And um, I remember my family gathering around me, and uh, the police were like, you know, really tearing up the neighborhood, trying to find out, you know, who who did it and causing a lot of problems. And it was decided that uh, I would uh, turn myself in and have lawyers and whatnot and that, uh, you know, I would I would take my pinch. And so uh, I went forward and uh, went to uh, juvenile court. Uh, pled guilty to the case and I was uh, kind of got uh, according to my uncles and everybody else they were really angry because they had actually thought they had this thing fixed to where I would uh, spend like a month or two in juvie and then I'd be out but I uh, went to the Adi home and uh, it was during a time when uh, they were kind of fed up with violence up there and they were like saying you know got to start doing something with these crazy kids and so they decided that uh, i would be sent to reform school until i was 21 and um of course it kind of angered a lot of people that it went down that way but what happened was uh i did go to reform school but i didn't stay there i mean i kept running off they couldn't keep, they really couldn't keep me there. I would just continually run off and I'd have friends that I could, you know, call and they'd come and meet me and pick me up and carry me back to the city. And uh, a lot of times my father would give me money and send me down to Miami, Florida, where we had family down there, or he'd send me to Tennessee, you know, different places to hide out. But uh, it seems like I'd always get into something wherever I went, I'd get into something. I'd steal cars and rob places, get caught, and then they go, oh, you know, they need you back up in Illinois, you know, and I'd get sent back to Illinois. And that was like, uh, that went on for like five years. And when I was 17, uh, they had created a program, and it was called uh, Uh, something zero i forgot now what was it something the idea was is that you'd start ground zero that's what it was that that was before they used ground zero as a term for nuclear explosions or whatever this was uh supposed to be like you, you start over at zero like you don't have a bad record no one's to know what you did and you get a fresh start and so um uh I was looking forward to that because I was sick of reform school life. 
that's a violent life too, you know, for kids. Uh, you had uh, administrators there that uh, were, were were just uh, sadist. You know, I mean, these people, they got off on beating kids. Some of them got off on raping kids. You know, they just uh, you had different kind of people there, man. They were just crazy. And uh, then kids, you know, would, you know, beat up each other because uh, that's just the way it was. And um, I remember when I first got to reform school, I took some soda pops and put them in a bag and beat a kid half to death with it because he, you know, got out of pocket with me up in there. But, you know, that's how you build your rep in these places and people leave you alone, you know. So you learn that early on. But uh, I was excited about this ground zero thing, you know. And so I got uh, out of reform school legally and uh, I was going to go to high school. I'd never been to high school. I'd always, you know, been in reform school. So I was excited about going to high school and I was told that nobody there, nobody, not even the principal would know my past and I would just get a fresh start. And I was real excited about that. And uh, I was staying with my father. He had a girlfriend and she had, you know, was going to help me you know, get all together and everything. We went out shopping, got some nice clothes, you know, got all together for high school. And I remember my first day, of course, at that age, I, I, I went in, it was going to be my last, my first and last year of high school. So um, I remember going in and um, uh, started walking down the hallway to find my locker. And it's like Moses parted the Red Sea. All these kids like moved out of my way, you know, and I knew right then and there that, you know, something went right. And I went to my locker and everybody's just like, you know, they were afraid of me. And I went to the dining room and uh, sat down. <laughs> this little nerdy kid, I'll never forget him. He was buck tooth, more glasses. And he come over and he asked me if he could sit down with me. I said, sure, go ahead, get, grab a seat. And so he sat there real quiet for the longest. And then finally he said, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure. Why did you kill your whole family? <laughs> I said, I said, what? He said, why did you kill your whole family? I said, who told you that? He said, that's what they're saying around here. They say that you just come from a, a, a kid prison and that you were there for like killing your whole family in the middle of the night. And I go, I said, no, it's crazy. I didn't do that. And they said, well, man, that's what they're telling us. That you're a nut. <laughs> so <laughs> this kid was like my first friend, you know. And it seemed like these nerdy kids around there were like my friends. And um, um, I kind of, in a way, looked after them, you know. Uh, I think they they sensed that or something because they hung out with me and, and no one bothered them anymore. And when I heard their stories, they had been like humiliated through high school. So I kind of had a kinship toward them because, you know, I, I knew what it was like to be uh, treated terribly, you know. So I didn't mind sticking up for them and running people off that were trying to mess with them. And um, so that was my high school experience. And and I kind of felt a little betrayed, you know. And um after high school, I uh, went into the military for a while. And then after that, uh, I kind of drifted around a little bit, trying to figure out 
what I wanted to do with my life. And um, I couldn't find anything that made me feel good like it did when I was working with my family. So um, I got really deeply involved in um, uh, the uh, auto parts business, I guess you could call it. We would uh, take cars out of the south and bring them north and cars out of the north and take them south. And um, I had a unique position at that time because I had very strong ties with uh, people that were members of the Irish mob and the Italian mob, but also I had strong ties with people in the south that were members of uh, a thing called Dixieland Mafia. So I, you know, I knew all these guys. I was probably one of the only guys around at that time that had this connection to all three groups. And so uh, it was very hard for me when they started fighting each other over control of uh, this large business. And uh, that was called a, a war. And that war broke out in the 70s. And a lot of people got hurt. Uh, well. They got killed. A lot of people got killed. You know, a lot of Italians, a lot of Irish, and a lot of uh, uh, hillbillies. You know, people that were members of the Dixieland Mafia, a lot of times up north, just straight out referred to as hillbillies. And um, so um, it, it got ugly. And um, I had an uncle who uh, realized my situation of being kind of tight with everybody also put me at the crosshairs of everybody and you know everybody was everybody liked me but at the same time you know everybody wanted me kind of dead too so uh it, it was decided that uh i was going to be kind of like a bad guy for a while and run around the country and collect money from uh dirty bookstores and uh, uh dance halls and uh, strip clubs that were owned by uh, my uncle's people. And that was my job for a couple of years there. Just, I'd go down to Florida, Arizona, New Mexico, California, even out in places like Nebraska, Tennessee, uh, Arkansas. I just went all over the country to where these places were located and just go in and uh, make collections and bring all that cash back to Chicago. And um, I did that, and it was fun. You know, I enjoyed doing it. Uh, there was no violence involved. Everybody always paid. You know, no one ever said no. When you went there, they already had it ready and just gave it to you. And you would go by uh, twice a year to these places. But there were so many of them that you just kept rolling. And um, that all came to an end down in Texas when um, I'd had probably about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I guess it was, and I was uh, told to hang tight because the fighting was so bad in Chicago that the FBI and uh, all the big heavy uh, law enforcement agencies were like snooping right up everybody's butt, man, and giving everybody trouble. You know, so I was told just to hang out where I was, take care of the money, and. Uh, they would call me and tell me when to bring it in. And uh, 
a most unfortunate uh, thing happened. Uh, these, uh, I went to a friend and I told him, you know, I was going to bury it out there on his land just for a while in a, you know, a big cooler. And uh, <laughs> his stepson and his stepson's friend saw us bury it. And right after we buried it, they dug it up and uh, went out and bought cars and went on a spending spree and got caught by the cops and the cops confiscated the money. And uh, there I am, owing 700 plus. And um, because of my uncle and everybody else, they, they gave me a year to pay it back. And so I got busy. I was like a crazy person. I was running around robbing everything that wouldn't nail down, trying to get that money up. And I did raise quite a bit, but I was still like 280, close to 300 shy. And so we went down to Tennessee and uh, did this kidnapping and tried to raise about that much money, somewhere between 250000 to 300000 And uh, I already had a, a good lead on another grand, hundred grand. So we were trying to put all the money together. And I got caught. And uh, went to court and got sentenced to prison. And that was in uh, 1978. And um, entered prison in 1978. Uh, not a changed person at all. I mean, you know, I still same crazy person I'd always been. I got in prison and quickly developed, you know, my reputation, you know, by attacking other prisoners, stabbing them, whatever it took, you know. Uh, got in there and started my own little thing there with different guys, you know, little gangs and stuff to run some drugs and other stuff inside. And um, that was my life. And um, one of the things that always stuck out in my mind was uh, when I was out stealing and robbing and doing all the things I did, and, I mean, there were just so many things I did that you just can't even, I mean, it'd take a hundred shows to tell it all, you know. <laughs> but uh, there's just so many things. I mean, every day was something, you know. So, um, but I can remember different times, you know, seeing a, a guy about my own age, which at that time would have been around 26, 27. And I could see these guys with their girlfriends or their wives. And I used to think, man, they don't have a clue how lucky they are to be living that kind of life, you know, uh, basically, you know, daydreaming about what it would be like to be square, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, you quickly push that out of your mind and you go and do the job that you're there to do. And um, so, you know, and I never, I never did, uh, never did anything uh, for humanity or for myself. You know, I just was a taker. And um, of course, you know, it's all wrapped up in a nice package that you're, that you believe, you know, like the biggest mob is the government, you know, they're, they're, they're a big mob. You don't ever go against them because you can't beat them. They kill better than you kill. They steal better than you steal. So you can't you can't go up against the government. They're just too mean, you know. So I bought into all that and believed it. And um, so 
in prison. You know, I was just, you know, why change, right? I'm just uh, still crazy and wild. And um, I met this uh, brother who was uh, Dominican, and I was raised, I guess you can say Catholic. I mean, the belief that we had, I guess we'd go to mass on Sunday and go out and do what God knows what on Monday, right? But um, as a young fella and growing up, that's the only religion I ever knew other than when I was with my grandmother, she went to this little church, but uh, this guy that I met in prison, he would come in twice a week and he was, uh, uh, he was a good guy. You know, he, he was a Dominican and uh, uh, he always used to come and ask us to go to uh, Eucharistic service on Friday. And he always tried to get us to go to mass on Sunday. So it would be a priest come up from Memphis, Tennessee. Of course, we always turned him down. And uh, one time he come out on the yard, was out there drinking hooch. He come out there and he wanted to talk for a bit because he'd always come and talk to us. And um, he wanted to know what it, uh, what that stuff tasted like. So we gave him a taste, and he was like, "Oh, wow, this is." stronger than I could even imagine. He said, this is, is this insane. How do y'all make this? And kind of gave him a recipe. And uh, again, he kept asking. And finally, one day, you know, I just started hanging out over there with him a little bit and going to those services. And uh, he asked me what I'd been reading. I said, I don't know, the usual, you know, just junk, you know, cowboy books and stuff like that. He said, well, let's try reading this one. He said, I've heard you talk about your years and crime and all the wars and stuff with the crime and your time in the army and all that. He said, you might relate to this. So I took this book and it was a book about St. Francis of Assisi. And uh, it was pretty good. It was a good book actually. And um, I remember after reading that, he, uh, turned me on a couple more books and I read those, uh, before, you know, it. this guy, <laughs> he had me reading Martin Luther King. He had me reading Gandhi and, uh, I was just reading all these different books and these guys. And I guess the one that really got me more than anybody was uh, a little guy named Technohan. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but, uh, it's a little Buddhist guy from Vietnam. And uh, I was reading his book, and uh, I just sort of got to wondering, you know, could I, you know, could I make those kind of changes in my life, you know? And, um, of course, in the Bible, you have all these great inspirational stories that Jesus talks about, you know, if you leave out all the other stuff that everybody else wrote, just stick to what he had to say. He had a lot of good stuff to say. And so uh, one day, uh, Brother Kerwin, who later on became a priest, he's now Father Kerwin down in Texas. And um, he asked me, you know, he said, um, you know, one thing I've always wondered about you, and, and hope you don't mind if I ask. I go, no, you know, we're, by now we're, I consider him a friend. You know, I said, no, boy, what's up? He said, you know, you told me those stories about looking at other people and wishing you could be square and all that. 
He said, how come you never made the change? I said, well, I didn't make the change because I, I, I came. He says, oh, okay, that makes sense. Then you can't, right? I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, you're right. You can't. You're always going to be a crazy person running around hurting people when you feel like it, I guess, because you really can't change. And, and that was that, you know, I went back to my cell and man, that ate on me for weeks. You know, I laid around thinking about that. You can't change. You know, if you can't, you can't. And just kept bugging me, you know, and, and finally I, it bugged me so much I started getting angry and I was like, you know, what the hell does he mean? I can't, you know, I can do pretty much any damn thing I want to do. What the hell does he mean? I can't. And then, um, I just kept reading, you know, filling my mind with this idea of peace, inner peace, uh, something outside of yourself and inside yourself all at the same time, you know. And I just kept thinking about it. And uh, there's been this real bad killing up in Brushy Mountain. Uh, a couple guys had sawed out of their rooms. And uh, there was a turf war between black inmates and white inmates over drug trade. And these guys, uh, white guys, they'd all got pistols and they cut out of their cells. And uh, they uh, shot and killed like five black guys while they were still in their cell. And um, they shipped a lot of people down to Fort Pillow. And Fort Pillow was like 90% black and 10% white. And I'm a white guy, so it wasn't faring well for us down there. So we had decided on the yard that if we were going to go down, we'd go down on our feet anyway. So we started getting our weapons together. And and I just had this thought, you know, that, you know, I'm going to die pretty, pretty much today is my last day. And I thought, well, you know what? If I am going to die today, I'd like to die having just for a few hours, if not at all, being a nice guy, being a good person. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So I just made a decision that, uh, kind of like Chief Joseph, you know, I, I'll fight no more. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a violent person ever again. I'm, I'm done. If I die in an hour, I die. If I live an hour, I live. Whatever the case may be, I'm not going to. I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm I'm done. I'm I'm through. And um, I went and told my guys, I said, uh, hope you don't feel like I'm going to abandon you guys or anything, but I'm done. I'm not fighting no more. And um, they thought I was nuts, you know. And uh, But I didn't. I threw my weapons away. I didn't even carry a knife. I didn't even wear a vest. You know, you can make a prison you can take magazines and create little pockets where you can like put these magazines and make like a breast plate and a back plate and an underarm plate where if somebody comes up and sticks you you got something to kind of hold that knife back a little bit i even got rid of that i just was done and um i didn't die that day i didn't die that week hell i didn't die that month i didn't even die that year it was like I was, I don't know, protected by something that I couldn't even see. And uh, nobody even spoke ill to me. I mean, no one would come at me, and it, it was just great. I spent all my time reading, 
And meantime, all my friends are like thinking, what's this guy doing? And <laughs> they were all going, oh, he's, we got to stick close to him. He's got some hell of a scam going here. He's up to something. Let's stick to him, find out what he's up to. He ain't a dummy. He's up to something. So I, you know, I just started getting them to read what I was reading. And uh, we started holding meetings out on the yard where we would discuss uh, meditation and uh, ideals of uh, loving people instead of hating people and helping people instead of hurting people. And uh, the thing that I like most that I shared with guys is uh, Technohan's vision of being a flower growing where you're planting. You know, you don't have to be a prisoner unless you choose to be a prisoner, no matter what your confinement, you can be free wherever you are. And uh, he was right about that. And I was beginning to experience a freedom inside that I'd never experienced outside. And I was uh, nine years in to my sentence at that time when I made this change in my life. And I just kept looking around to see who I could help or how I could help. And um, I remember about that time the AIDS e epidemic had broken out and people were scared. They didn't have information. They were trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. Was the government trying to kill everybody? Or what, because it seemed like it was going after uh, uh, druggies, gay people, and anybody living on the fringe, you know, it was like after them or something. And so there was this huge lack of information and uh, guys in prison were getting sick. They were dying. Some of them were gay. Most of them were gay, but some of them weren't, you know, and we, no one could figure out what the hell was going on. And so we reached out. We got information from the health department. We bugged the crap out of them until finally they came in and gave us all the information they had. <clears throat> and then we started teaching classes. We tried to get condoms in prison, but that was like asking for a uh, uh, million dollars from a poor person. They, they, they ain't coming off of that. And uh, they said, they'll just have to stop doing what they're doing. So, man, these people can't even control, you know, any basic behavior they have. They're, 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 they just don't have that ability. You know, they need something more until they can grow up enough to, to be more uh, responsible or something. And uh, they, of course, they wouldn't do it. So we just started teaching classes and trying to teach people how to be proactive in uh, their health. Uh, the main thing that we were concerned about after getting information out to the gay prisoners was to get information out to people that were using tattoos and doing drugs. Because a lot of the people that were doing intravenous drugs and uh, making tattoos were getting sick. And a lot of them were getting sick with hepatitis uh, C and, uh, and AIDS also. So it hit prison pretty hard. And uh, so I was able to be on the forefront of that and try to help save lives. And I believe we did. I believe we were able to save some lives in there. And... Uh, I felt that need to take that a little further. So I transferred from where I was to prison in uh, West Tennessee. And I went to uh, Nashville where they'd built a brand new medical facility up there for people with physical ailments and mental health issues. And I went up there on staff 
And being up there, it was great because I was able to uh, help the sick and work with people. And it really felt great after all those years of being such an asshole to finally be able to help people. And um, that's what I did. I, I would uh, spend my time helping the, the, the other prisoners. I was a inmate advisor. Uh, I helped them when they got disciplinary problems and pretty much had to run to the prison, you know, go pretty much anywhere. By then, I had like uh, 19 years in. And I uh, uh, remember one day uh, after about 21 years in, I was in the band room and uh, I saw this. Uh, you always notice anything out of the normal or new. And I saw this woman walk by with a unit manager. And I thought, well, that's probably about the most beautiful woman I believe I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, I was going to, I wound up marrying that woman. <laughs> and she was something else. She was in there for a, uh, 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 doing a practicum, she was already a master's degree in uh, education, and she went back to school to get a master's degree in uh, social work because she wanted to be a counselor. And uh, she'd gone through a lot of her own uh, healing and uh, from codependency issues, and you know, a couple bad marriages. And uh, of course, I didn't know all this at the time, but. Uh, I met her inside and we became really friends, you know, just really enjoyed talking to each other and each other's company. And uh, head of the psychology department there actually introduced us because he and I had become friends. And um, the way he and I became friends was he had these ideals for programs and he wanted me to come with him and, and help him run these programs to sort of give him legitimacy with the guys that he was trying to help and i liked the idea of the programs that he was putting together because they were teaching guys how to dig deep and find some human light within themselves you know and and, and let that light kind of grow on out and try to forgive themselves for things that they had done and and learn to be better people and uh, it all centered around a, a therapy, something I think it was like called uh, cognitive therapy, you know, getting people to really think about things because so many people just, you know, they're, they're always on automatic. They don't, they don't think things through. They just react or act. And so I was glad to help him with those programs and, um, uh, they were good. And a lot of, a lot of men got a lot of help out of that. And um, so he introduced me to uh, Linda and, excuse me, and um, I'd been working under the assumption for quite a while that I had life with parole. And I was working toward that goal of getting out in 1998. And um, about that time, I, I noticed that because of Linda and my friendship, uh, prison is like this huge gossip mill. And all this gossip was going, and it wasn't true, but it was still pretty ugly. And um, I was telling Linda, this is getting uglier by the minute. You know, we're going to have to, you know, you know, you, if you, you know, want to get your practicum and not get kicked out of your school, you might ought to consider wrapping this thing up as quick as you can and leaving because these people in here 
will try to set you up. And they really will. The administration and the uh, prisoners, too. They get this jealousy thing going. They'll, they'll try to, you know, really uh, set you up and, and, and make, make you look like a bad person and, you know, really run you through the ringer. And uh, so uh, she decided that that was a good course. And so she left. <clears throat> but before she left, you know, we really had a great time. You know, we would, uh, she would go up to the medical wards with me and uh, just give comfort, you know, to the guys that were up there that were dying. A lot of guys up there had cancers and uh, a lot of them had liver problems. And uh, one of the guys that I knew, uh, James Earl Ray, I don't know if you know who that is. Well, if you probably do, you're into radio and everything. It's a guy who was uh, accused of killing Martin Luther King. Uh, he was up there and I took Linda over to meet him and, uh, he was dying at the time. And uh, I remember Linda asked me, did I think that he did it? And I was, you know, you know, positive that in my thought that, that he did not do it. You know, I'd known the guy for a long time and, you know, his story never changed. He was always right on where he was at. And I remember pushing him in his wheelchair and up into a meeting where a uh, talk show host brought Dexter King in to meet uh, James Earl Ray. And Dexter King looked at him and he says, uh, did, uh, did you uh, kill my father? And James looked him right in the eye and said, no, sir, I, I did not kill your father. And I, I wasn't involved in the killing of your father. Dexter King told him, he said, you know, I believe you and my family believes you. And uh, we're going to try to find out, you know, who actually did this. And James was like, well, I hope you do, you know. And I remember pushing that guy back to his cell, helping him get in his bed. And I'd known that guy for years. And I'd never seen him crack. And he just started crying. And I'm like, are you all right, James? And he's like, I am now. And I said, well, I'm glad. And the reason he was crying was he was happy. You know, he he knew that even though he was dying, that he felt that he knew that uh, people weren't going to just let that go, that they'd keep digging until they eventually found out, you know, who really killed Dr. King. And, you know, to me, that's not the actions of a guilty man. And not long after that, he did die, passed away. And, uh, you know, you meet a lot of characters in there, you know, and I guess James Earl Ray was one of those characters. And, uh, you know, people have their opinions, you know, and I've seen some, <laughs> some one documentary where this guy was trying to, it was like he was speaking for James Earl Ray or something, you know, about his thoughts and motivations. And the guy clearly didn't know the guy. <laughs> but uh, I guess people do what they got to do to get their dollar in. You know what I mean? But uh, that's another story, I guess they say. Mm -hmm. But uh, my wife, uh, uh, she left and uh, went and uh, finished her education, and I was getting ready to come up for parole in '98. Uh, and there was this guy there that had a 
uh, I guess a crush or something on my wife, you know, and she never gave him time of the day. And when he found out I was going up for parole, he contacted the judge. This is one of the people within the administration. And he was complaining and saying, you know, this guy doesn't need to get parole. You know, he's a, he's a bad guy. He's a con all that. And the judge says, well, he ain't supposed to get out on parole. I sentenced him to life without parole. So just like that, you know, they canceled my parole date and they said that I was doing life without parole. And then, uh, on top of all of that, they said that, uh, my wife and I couldn't get married that, uh, because I had life now without parole, there's no sense in granting me the right to get, get married. And, it was just a crazy time, you know. Uh, if it hadn't been for my inner peace, I think I would have just went nuts because the inner peace I had allowed me to just to say, you know, that's what they say. But you know, I, I had this this knowing, this sense that you know, I'm 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 getting out. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm going to get out. I, you know, I, it's going to be interesting to see how the universe unfolds this for me because I knew it would happen. And uh, this lawyer came into our lives, and Linda made arrangements with him to to, to uh, pay him, you know, at a, at a very good discounted rate. And he was a great guy, and he got in there and fought like a champion. And uh, first thing he did was he was able to get get it okayed for Linda and I to be able to see each other and to finally get married. But for two years, we were not even able to, we couldn't even see each other. We had to rely on these very, 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 very expensive phone calls to stay in touch with each other. And, uh, and those phone calls, my goodness, you talk about ripping off families of prisoners. These things are outrageous. You know, you could spend as much as a hundred bucks for a 30 minute phone call. You know what I mean? Can you imagine that? So it was just nuts. And, um, but uh, we finally won the right to get married, and uh, they transferred me out to Brushy Mountain, East Tennessee, to the Morgan County Annex. And um, Linda and I got married, and that was a great day. In the meantime, my legal case was going through the courts. Seems like every time we went to court, we would lose. And we finally wound up in the Tennessee Supreme Court. They agreed to hear the case. And uh, I remember one day I got a message, uh, your lawyer wants you to call him. And I knew we were waiting for the decision to come down because they'd already had the oral argument before the before the Tennessee Supreme Court. And I, asked, I called my lawyer and he said, how you doing today? I said, well, I'm doing okay. Another day in prison. Everything's all right. He says, well, uh, are you sitting down? And I said, no, I can't. The court on the phone won't reach to the floor. He said, well, you might want to think about trying to get you a seat. I said, well, there's a wall here. I'll lean against the wall. How's that? <laughs> he said, well, the decision's in. It was a unanimous decision. I said, wow. I said, well, how'd it go? He said, you're coming home, son. They agreed unanimously that you had an illegal sentence. So, I mean, that was like, whoa. Take, talking about taking bricks off your back, you know what I mean? So the Tennessee Supreme Court, by unanimous decision, decided that I had an illegal sentence. I'd like to say I came home the next day, but courts being what they are, it took two more years before I finally got out. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
I know it's it's nuts. But uh, in 2005, I got out after 27 years. And um, uh, when I got out, it was like a mad rush, kind of like to catch up, you know. Uh, my wife was teaching school, and uh, I started driving for a living. I started out driving a van, hauling transmission parts, and then I started to uh, uh, driving trucks and then I bought a couple of trucks and had a little trucking business and it would, you know, it was like chicken today, feathers tomorrow, you know, one week you do really good. Next week you wouldn't do so good. And, but you know, we were paying bills and, um, I remember Linda and I, we spend a lot of time working hard during the day, but we'd always lay down at night and, we would, you know, discuss our day, you know, I'd say, how was your day and what happened? And she would tell me and she'd ask about my day and I'd tell her how it went. And we just have that ever, you know, that was our conversation every night. Just uh, talking about our day and just letting everything kind of slide off, you know. And <clears throat> during these conversations, it, we kept thinking about these uh, children of uh, people in prison, you know. I mean, the, all the years that I was in there, I'd see these little kids, seven, eight years old, come to visit their moms or their dads, rather. And uh, I'm sure they were going to visit their moms, too, because there was a lot of women locked up. But, you know, these kids, 10 years later, they'd be walking the yard out there, you know, and they'd have an uncle and a cousin on the same cell block. And I just realized, you know, how generational this thing was. I mean, it was generational for me. My family had all been in prison. And I just thought, you know, this is insane that kids are growing up, following parents to prison. And the incarceration rate is like maddening. It's, you know, it had, it had hit two million people at that time. And I'm like, Christ. And that's just the number of people that were in. I wouldn't even count on the ones that had been in and got out. And that we're on parole. I mean, you know, the numbers are just staggering how many people have been locked up or have come in contact with this system. And then we got to figuring out, you know, things like uh, in some states, they were actually planning prison beds based on the number of children that the currently incarcerated had because they knew that was a good indicator of how many prison beds they would need in the future because they knew these kids were going to grow up, commit crimes, and come to prison. And so my question was, what the fuck? I mean, if we know this, why aren't we doing something? Why aren't we sitting back on our freaking hands, you know? Why is somebody not doing something? And so uh, I, it was just driving me crazy. And I was on a run, and I went out to uh, San Francisco. And... Uh, it was a long drive out there, and I thought, you know, it'd be great to have somebody to talk to on the way back. So I got on ride share, and I offered a ride to anybody that wanted to go back east. And this guy calls up. He's a <clears throat> he's a uh, documentary filmmaker and uh, uh, kind of an eccentric kind of guy, and uh, he doesn't like to fly. And he was out in, on the West Coast uh, for a conference, and the conference was over, and he didn't want to drive a, a ride a Greyhound bus back to New York City, and he was trying to get as far east as he could go. 
<clears throat> I told him I was going to Tennessee. He could, you know, I'd give him a ride that far. So I meet this guy and uh, uh, we're going down the road and we're talking a lot. And he gets to talking about the Kennedy assassination and his fascination with this stuff. And before I know it, I'm talking about James O'Reilly. And, and this guy's like, well, wait a minute. You know, he says, how do you know all this? And I'm thinking, wait a minute, now how am I going to tell this guy that I just, you know, that I spent 27 years in prison, here we are out on the road, this guy is going to freak plumb the fuck out, you know? I mean, can you imagine being in a car with somebody like that, right? And so I just told him, I said, look, you've been riding with me for about nine hours now, so I guess you feel like you kind of know me and you know I'm a good person, I'm not going to do anything crazy but you know I, I know this because i was in prison for 27 years and i knew this guy <clears throat> well his reaction blew me away because he starts breaking out all this recording equipment he's like man i gotta get this i gotta get this you know and he's like you know he had a thousand questions i guess you could say he was my first interviewer <laughs> but he's a great guy his name is geo geller and so through meeting him um, I get a phone call probably about six months later <clears throat> and he's wanting me to come to New York. And he says, I got this friend that has this thing. It's called a 140 conference. And I'd love for you to come up here and he'd <laughs> like, like, he'd like to meet you. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So I says to Linda, I says, you know, should I do this? And she's like, well, what do you feel? I said, well, he seems to think it's a good place to get the story out. Maybe we could talk about these kids and get people interested in trying to help them. He said, well, you know, that's, she said, well, you know, if you felt that way, you need to go. So I packed my old car up and I drove up to New York and, uh, met Gio again. And, uh, he has an apartment over in Manhattan and, uh, over on ninth Avenue there. And so, uh, I stayed with him, and uh, the next day, he took me to uh, <clears throat> a 140 meeting, and there were a lot of people there. I mean, the place was like packed, and at that time, I'd been out of prison hmm, probably about five years, I guess, five or six years, and um, so I was still, and even today, you know, I, a bit large crowds, you know, I tend to try to find a wall, you know. It's just habit, I guess you'd say. You know, you, you want to kind of stick to walls or whatever. But uh, <clears throat> I, I sit all the way in the back. You know, I'm a back row setter. Even in church, I'm a, I like to grab the back pew. So anyway, uh, I'm sitting all the way in the back, and I, I'm hearing all these interesting people talk about all this interesting technology that I don't know anything about. I mean, I got like a phone, you know, the simple phone. I, I, that's me. I got this simple phone. I, I and uh, the computer was very intimidating to me when I got out. Uh, I told my wife, I said, you know, I thought a computer was like a uh, typewriter hooked up to a TV. You know, I just, <laughs> you know, it just it, that's how it looked. You know, and I'm like, and she very lovingly just stuck with me and showed me all these things about the computer, and I was just, you know, it was a lot to take in because I just had not seen one cell phones. I mean, these things were so weird. It was like Star Trek had come alive or something, you know, with the flip phone and all that. It was just really 
we're getting used to this technology. <clears throat> and uh, Geo had already told me about this thing called Twitter. And so Twitter was kind of new at the time, and it was really hot and sexy, I guess. And a lot of people were into it. And so he showed me how to start a Twitter account. And I had like five friends or something like that, or, or you know, five followers, I guess you call it. And so it was kind of kind of strange, you know, this technology. And um, so anyway, I'm at this 140 conference, and... <clears throat> And I'm hearing all these interesting people talk. And uh, this guy named Jeff Pulver was kind of like leading the, the discussion. And uh, Gio had already told me that, you know, that was his friend. And so uh, things are about to wrap up and Jeff gets up on the stage and he says, uh, for all you people at State, he said, I think you're going to have a treat tonight. He says, uh, there's a guy in the audience that's got this really incredible story that would like to share with y'all if we can get him to come up here. He said, I'm going to go over and see if I can get him to come up here and tell this great story. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be cool. We've got somebody who's going to tell a cool story. And he starts walking toward me, and I'm like, holy shit, he's, he's coming toward me. No, 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 fuck no, fuck no, fuck no, 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 not me, not me, not me. And he comes on, he goes, hey, Andy, you want to tell your story? And I'm like on the spot now, you know, I'm like, I don't know, you know, I've just had never spoken in front of people. And I was like nervous and I like, well, yeah, sure. Why not? You know? And so I get up and I go up on the stage and Gio's there. So he helps out a lot. He kind of breaks the ice and tells the crowd how we met and we get to talking. And, and so I'm, I'm talking with all these people and I'm telling them about my life and I start telling them about these kids and, how important I think it is to try to help them. And um, somebody asked me a question, you know, said, well, what do you think about this new technology and especially Twitter? And I told him, I said, well, you know, <clears throat> I've been kind of looking at Twitter for a while. Uh, I don't know, a week or two, three weeks, a month, whatever it was at that time. And the thing that stuck out to me was like, it seemed like the whole thing was about getting followers. And about having friends that, that you hang out with kind of like in this uh, 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 computer space, you know. So um, I told him, I said, you know, when I look at that, I, you know, I kind of look at it as like the prison yard. You know, if your word is good and everybody knows that your word is good, then a lot of people will want to be around you. They'll want to follow you and be a part of your clique. But if your word is not any good, then you're kind of going to wind up over here in uh, Twitter jail or whatever, you know. And they they seem to resonate with that description of Twitter, I guess. So I remember after that, I had like 300 friends. And then I had like uh, people quoting me all over Twitter saying, you know, ex-con says Twitter is like prison yard. If you want to succeed, your word's got to be good or something like that. Kind of took off there, you know. But I met a lot of people there, people that I still know today and still communicate with that are, you know, uh, supporters of anything that I want to try to do. And um, so that was a great experience. Meeting Jeff Pulver was a great experience. And through Jeff, I, I, I got to meet a lot of great people. And that night, I met uh, uh, Melissa and AJ, you know, uh, you know them, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, 
I got to meet them, two incredibly people. I mean, these people are just incredible, the things that they do. I mean, they inspired me, you know, just hearing them, hearing their story. It was just so inspiring. <laughs> and so uh, I just met a lot of great people. And uh, like I said, these people, they all inspired me with what they were trying to do. It seems like no matter what the genre of all these different people were, it seemed like a lot of them were marketing people, but they they all wanted to do something good. You know, they didn't, they, they didn't just want to make a dollar. They wanted to make a change, you know, and I thought that was wonderful. And um, so after meeting all these people, it was just like I kept getting invited back to New York to speak. And then I wound up, uh, uh, speaking at South by Southwest down in uh, uh, Austin, Texas, and just uh, seems like everybody is wanting me to come up and you know talk. And so uh, it, it was good, and um, it just kept uh, rolling along like that, and uh, eventually. Um, uh, I got a, uh, a contact from a lady named Jessica Murray, and she said that she had met Jeff Pulver at a, uh, an event, and um, I believe it was South by Southwest. It was the first one that I was going to go to, but uh, <clears throat> I didn't wind up going to the first one I was invited to because I had a family issue. I had to break away and go take care of my my father was really sick. And so I didn't get to go to the first one I was invited to, but I did make it to the second one. <clears throat> but uh, uh, Jeff introduced me to Jessica Murray, who was out of Nashville at that time. Uh, she's in Chicago now, but uh, at that time she was out of Nashville. And I met her and uh, a guy named Ian Rett and uh, met them in a restaurant down in Nashville and told them what it was I was trying to do. And they said, well, dude, you need a, you guys need a website. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And so they put together this uh, thing called a design-a-thon. <laughs> and they brought together this group of geeks, man, that uh, in 24 hours, they created branding and, and helped design a name and, and, put a website together and that's how I met Brett met Brett Henley there he was a a writer and he wrote content and did all kind of great stuff for the designing of the website it was just terrific and uh that's how youth turns was uh uh birthed we it was uh birthed right there and so uh youthturns.org they they helped put that together or help, they did put it together. And it was just wonderful. You know, all this young, raw talent coming together to, you know, help the kids of the incarcerated. <clears throat> but what I found out, unfortunately, was that uh, uh, there's not a lot of uh, dollars available for, uh, you know, helping these kinds of kids. Uh you know, if uh, you want to go help some puppies or, you know, stop abuse of animals, there's tons of dollars, I guess. But when it comes to helping 
keep kids out of prison. There's just not a lot of funds available for that kind of stuff, especially if you're, you know, a guy that just got out of jail and you're, you know, and uh, you want to start an organization and, and get funding. A lot of people aren't in no big hurry to help that out. So my wife and I decided what we would do is we just, you know, we'll go back out on the road. And we'll put together a trucking company and we'll make money from that and we'll, we'll spend our own money on it. We'll try to fund it ourselves. And we won't ask anybody for anything. You know, we just, people later on catch on and catch up to what we're doing and if they want to donate, they can. But for right now, we'll just we'll make our own money and we'll fund it ourselves. And uh so we set about to do that, and then uh, Brett Henley called me in, uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago, he called calls me up and <clears throat> said he'd like to touch base, and you know, he hadn't seen us in a while, see how things are going. And so I met him in a, a coffee house over in um, uh, the village in Nashville, and uh place called Fido's. We went over there and had coffee and breakfast. And and from that meeting, Brett decided he would like to write a novel about uh, uh, my life and Linda's and how we met. And, you know, it's a a story of reinvention and uh, redemption and forgiveness and love and it's a love story and everything else combined. You know, it's just a, a, a life of wanting to give back for all the damage that I'd caused earlier in my life. And that's kind of where it is. Wow. Um, Amazing. Really, really, truly just an amazing story. Make sure you tune back in Wednesday for part two of the episode where Andy talks to me all about his insights and lessons learned from the journey of his life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.